our Redeemer. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Well, something must have gone very wrong between Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 8. You'll remember that last Sunday morning, the disciples were all together in one place, sharing in fellowship and teaching and prayer and sharing their goods in common. And this morning, it seems that the new church is on the run. How else are we to understand this sudden shift from Jerusalem out to Samaria? Now, something had indeed changed. We're picking up the story this morning in the life of the early church in the days after the public stoning of Stephen. This very uh, public killing kicked off a period of intense persecution of Christians, led, of course, by Saul. A persecution that scattered the new believers all across the Mediterranean world, particularly those who had joined the church in the days after Pentecost. Saul's persecution had, of course, many consequences, some of them unintended. One was that it sent Jesus' followers out in as many directions as there are points on a compass. While their leaders remained in Jerusalem, the early church found itself in all kinds of surprising places, led there by the power of the Holy Spirit, and sustained by the same power. Now, Samaria, as you, of course, will recall, just in case, I'll I'll remind you, that Samaria was a city north of Jerusalem, formerly one of the capitals of the northern kingdom, and trouble could often be found there. There was genuine hostility between Samaritans and the Jews. You'll remember, of course, the parable of the Good Samaritan. What is shocking about that parable is that anybody could find a Good Samaritan. So dating back to this ancient feud between family members and disputes about who could worship at the temple and who could not. And by the first century, the Jews considered Samaritans to be apostate, almost as bad as Gentiles. It was common to say that he who eats the bread of the Samaritans is like one who eats the flesh of swine, and those are fighting words. But it was also not unheard of to run away to Samaria when things got a little too heated in Jerusalem. Fleeing to Samaria was a common practice for those accused of eating unclean food or violating the Sabbath, and that little religious rebellious streak meant that as new followers of the way of Jesus, Christians might have found a warmer welcome there because of their sudden outsider status in Jerusalem. And these exiles, finding themselves in places all across the map with no seminary training and no funding and no guidebook, faithfully preached the gospel. They preached the word they had heard from Jesus And from his disciples, and by God's grace, that little movement began to grow. The seed of the gospel found fertile ground, such that leaders like Peter and James could stay centrally in Jerusalem and offer apostolic support and encouragement as it was needed to the nascent churches and stay out of the way 
so that local adaptations of the faith could happen as they needed to. You can see why this kind of flexibility would make Christianity a little bit easier to adapt to different times and places. While the central claims of orthodoxy, well, Jesus was and is the same, churches developed local flavor and practice. Just as if you go to an Anglican church this morning in Nigeria, it looks a little bit different than Anglicanism here on Central Valley Road. I'm not going to ask you to do any dancing, for example. I mean, we could, but I'm not planning on it. Uh, and so this is, this is a theme that we see happening in Acts. The church is sent by God to places that Jews maybe never expected to find themselves to preach the gospel to people of very different races and tribes and tongues. And the Holy Spirit, it turned out, was able to be in those places too. The church was adaptable, nimble, and able to translate the good news of the gospel into different words and images that connected with people from a wide range of backgrounds and cultures. So Philip must have preached a gospel in Samaria that was compelling to Samaritans, one that spoke to the culture he found himself in. Now this is something we all know how to do because we do it in our lives. When you have a conversation with a friend and you're trying to persuade them to hold an opinion or adopt your position, you work to find examples or cultural connections that they will understand. You try to find some way to illuminate your thinking for them. And sometimes you just need to find some kind of common reference point that you share. I've told you before about my illustrious career as a summer camp counselor. And what I've left out until now is actually the name of our camp for reasons that are about to become very apparent. So I was once traveling in an airport in the summertime and I had my camp staff t-shirt on because they gave it to us for free and that's how things work in college. And I was approached by uh, a younger man and he has this big grin on his face and I have never seen him before. And I usually remember faces. And he grabs me by the shoulders, which is not something I really love, even if we've met before. And he looks at my shirt and he goes, hey man, camp weed. That is awesome. I love going to camp weed. And when I explained that our summer camp had been named for a bishop, <laughs> suddenly our close friendship just... <laughs> it just died on the vine. If, just to, if, kids, ask your parents. Uh, so so this, this connection, our connection was based on a complete misunderstanding. And Simon the magician seems to be drawn into the faith by similarly confused motives. So Simon is one of those who's been converted by Philip's preaching in Samaria. And after his baptism, he goes along with Philip, sort of following him around. And he sees amazing signs and great wonders. And instead of giving glory to God, when Peter and James show up to share the good news of the power of the Holy Spirit... Simon aspires only to acquire such power for himself. 
Now, magicians were not actually that well thought of in the ancient world. To call someone a magician was a term of defamation. It's what you would call your opponent in an argument to discredit them, to paint them as kind of a huckster. These characters were often charged with using their performances to gain money for themselves at the expense of the credulous in the crowd. Magicians don't want converts, they want customers. And Simon is one who seems to be intoxicated by the power that comes from attention. Attention gives you power, power draws greater attention, and around and around we go. And being known as a magician sounds like it was pretty much the best way to get attention from the Samaritans. But when he sees what the Holy Spirit can do, that is something he can't resist. John Calvin, the great Reformation leader, said that Simon was touched with wondering. And like a moth that's drawn to a flame, Simon needs to get closer. Because in the apostles, there is real power, and it's not like he has seen before, and he needs to get it for himself, no matter what it costs financially. So when Peter and James arrive to share the news of the Holy Spirit, to call it down on the new Samaritan believers, Simon is excluded. Simon cannot be a part of this gift because he wants to control the power of God for himself. And so he doesn't even understand what he's looking at. It's like, have you ever been to an art museum and seen one of those huge canvases that's painted in the pointillist style? Pointillism is, of course, the art form that just looks like tiny little dots when you're very, very close to it. And as you step further back, the full picture becomes clear. And what may look to you like just a million little dots on a canvas is actually a beautiful landscape. Simon is too close to see what God is actually doing. Now, there have always been people who see religion, and particularly the church, as a place where they can gain power and prestige and exercise control over others. They see faith communities as easy entry points, places that are made up of trusting people who will happily let them work their way up the ladder. And from there, they will find the power they have sought and failed to gain elsewhere. Power that will solve their problems or meet their needs or just let them tell other people what to do. And if you want something badly enough, if you're willing to ignore any sort of pesky internal voice of reason or moral code, you can usually get it. Have you ever wanted something so badly that you were almost consumed by that desire? Did you get what you wanted? Did it make you happy? And was the price that you paid, was it ultimately in the final calculation worth it? We can become addicted to this kind of power. If your example is yes, we should talk. Uh, (laughs) We can become addicted to power, just like any other kind of intoxicant. But as Paul wrote to the Philippians long after his days of persecution were over, Christ himself did not regard his equality with God as something to be grasped or held, but willingly gave it up, taking the form of a servant, laying down his life for others. This is the power that we should seek to gain for ourselves, 
power that is found by giving up ourselves in humiliation and suffering, not dominance and boasting. Jesus did not seek to raise his profile or gain more attention by magic tricks. Jesus was not a conjurer. He practiced a kind of radical downward mobility. When you are the son of God, everything else is a step down. He subjected himself to torture and death in order to expose the greed and the systematic oppression and the power hunger that sin imposed on the whole world. And Jesus broke the powers of sin and death by his faithfulness and his willingness to sacrifice for the sake of others. Simon has come to a kind of faith, but he wants what the apostles have, and he wants to control it for his own ends. All he sees is power, and he's willing to pay with cash whatever it takes to get it. He does not expect or want to have to do any suffering. The exchange of money for this kind of power makes sense in Simon's world, because he is outside the redeemed space of the church, where he is out in a world where cash rules everything around him. And he's kept at a distance, even while the Holy Spirit is poured out on the Samaritans, even while he is in the divine presence of the power of God, he cannot enter into it, because while he has been baptized, He has not actually left his old life behind at all. He's just brought his old life with him into his life with Christ. He's not broken from his old habits and his old ways. He wants to follow Jesus, but with just a couple caveats. Because the followers of Jesus seem like the guys who have the most power, as if Christ himself were just the biggest, baddest bully on the block. But if power is all that Simon finds attractive about the gospel boy, he is going to be very disappointed to hear about what Jesus is actually like. Jesus, of course, was meek and mild and merciful and willing to forgive. And it's that forgiveness that Simon actually needs most of all. He does not need the power of Christ. His thirst for these things and his pride are not just minor stumbling blocks on the road to righteousness. They are sinful patterns that exist within him that have to be disrupted and broken and cast out with that same intensity that Simon saw Philip casting out demons. The sin that lurks within his own heart has to be forcibly removed. The human heart cannot be contested territory. The power of the Holy Spirit cannot be controlled by our desire. There's a reason why when we talk about the Spirit, we often talk about wind, isn't there? Because the Spirit is wild and free, and while we cannot see it, we can feel it moving in our lives. Simon cannot possibly imagine the kind of power that this Spirit has. He's almost lucky, because what might have happened if Peter and John had given him what he asked for? He couldn't hope to contain or to channel it to serve his own desires. The spirit is not some kind of a superpower like invisibility or flight that you can use for your own needs. The Holy Spirit is God and God is not bound by human preference or desire or mood. 
And God, most crucially of all, has no competitors. Simon is in over his head and does not know it. The magic that he has practiced, whatever kind of clever sleight of hand or conjuring he has done previously, doesn't really compare at all to the power of the Holy Spirit, sending the church into the world, drawing new places and people into the life of the church, sending believers to go forth as heralds of the gospel. What kind of rabbit can you pull out of a hat that matches that? What kind of coin pulled from behind an ear can compare with the power of this God? Now, we live, friends, in a world where many, many people claim to be somebody great, who want to have power and prestige without any suffering, and who are happy to boast in their own accomplishments if it means they'll be able to climb the ladder a little bit more. But we should be sure to remember that all the worldly power that you can imagine All of the worldly power claimed by women and men fades away when compared to the actual power, the all-encompassing and all-surpassing might of the Lord. Those who are so easily puffed up with their own boasting, who want to talk about themselves and their accomplishments and their possessions and their influence, have an addiction to power that can be broken by the Holy Spirit so that they can be redeemed, and that is for their good. Because power of that kind leads only to pride, and pride is a deadly sin. The true power in the world is not held in human hands or constrained by human will, and that power is not to be trifled with. Those who seek to take the gospel and twist it to meet their own ends will find, like Simon, that they have caught a tiger by the tail. I'm reminded of an online video that a friend sent to me recently of a man who decided to document his experience testing a brand new taser on himself. <laughs> this is the sort of thing that you should never, you should never do, <laughs> much less videotape for posterity. And you can imagine how things go. Because as the gentleman in the video discovered, power is not a tool that can be used surgically. Things get out of hand in a hurry and it hurts. Too often we find ourselves in this same trap, the same one that Simon fell into, because we think we are responsible users of power. We think we can succeed where others have tried and failed because we are purer of heart or more dedicated in our commitments, or we have learned from the bad examples of others. But we are deceived. Power does not discriminate, and it will run roughshod over anyone who tries to use it for their own purpose. And that may be the case whether your intentions are pure or evil. In a world that worships power, that believes Having power is an end in and of itself. You and I are called to a different kind of life, a witness of counterculture, mutuality, and service that does not glorify dominance over others or pride, but creates a place for those who are addicted to power to repent and come to the true knowledge of the love of God and this gospel of Jesus Christ.
and the goodness and truth and beauty of life made possible by the gift of the Holy Spirit. And that life will be, for those who are fixated on power of all kinds, like a breath of fresh air blowing in through an open window, because it will look and sound and feel like nothing else they have ever encountered. What Philip and James and Peter showed Simon was the same thing that you and I can still offer, a clear witness to the love of God and its redemptive strength, a love that does not thirst for power of its own, but that can free those from their fixation who are addicted and can show them a better way to live. This is the way of the cross and it is the mission of the church to live more deeply day by day into that kind of sacrificial love so that the world may see the power of God at work in and through us and like a moth to a flame be drawn to that truth and to none other. Amen.